So there's a general perception that talking to self is the first sign of madness. Ever had one of those moments when you're talking aloud to yourself and all of a sudden another voice interrupts as if to say or indicate, are you sane, are you, are you alright? And that of course is uh, usually um, followed by a bit of shock and along with that a sense of embarrassment, clearly because... Talking aloud is generally associated with communicating to others. But far from being a sign of madness, talking to self is an expression of sanity. Asking yourself questions, reasoning with yourself, wrestling with your mind is healthy. And um, it does play a vital role in, in keeping your mind fit. It helps to organize your thoughts, to plan your actions, to consolidate your memory and even modulate or manage your emotions. In other words, it aids with controlling yourself, depending on what it is you're talking to yourself about, of course. So here in Psalm 42 and 43, we, we, we see, um, or the Psalms show us how to do it. They show us how our ultimate example, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have done it. So this morning we'll be tracing the psalmist's journey as he goes down to the depths of despair and up to the heights of hope, down to the depths of depression and up to a settled confidence in God. And by the grace of God, we'll learn and be reminded of how to handle Desperate straits or difficult situations, extreme stress and intense depression, which is, um, or which if mishandled, can be disastrous, it can be catastrophic. So to help us do just that, I've, uh, I've sliced the message into three portions where we'll be, we'll be considering the psalmist's condition, we'll be considering the the causal factors of the condition and a set of cures for the condition. That is the, uh, the condition, the cause and the cure. But before we get to that, it's important to note that these two psalms are believed to be um, two parts of the same psalm. That's why we read them together. You will see from the Bible, uh, number one is because they share an almost identical interlude or a refrain, kind of like a chorus, which is really a, a piece of a song rendered between parts of a song. And you can see that in, in 42 verse 5, um, 42 verse 11. Um, you can also see that in uh, 43 verse 5. The structure of the song is quite easy to follow. You have four verses followed by a refrain. Uh, then you have five verses and another refrain. And at the start of Psalm 43, you have a father, four verses, and the final refrain. Second reason as to why they're added together is because there's no title for Psalm 43, is there? There is none. 
So in terms of, uh, of, of its authorship, some scholars attribute it to David because of its personal nature. They suggest that um, David composed it and handed it to the sons of Korah. This is a group of professional singers and musicians who performed in the tabernacle and temple worship. Others suggest that the author is anonymous. So as we come to this psalm today, I'm in the latter camp. I am in the anonymous camp, so I'll be addressing it from that standpoint. Now I want to draw your attention to the psalmist's condition. The condition as manifested in the following symptoms. Verse 1 begins with a metaphor of a deer, a picture of a deer. A deer panting desperately for life, giving waters. And verse 2 explains the metaphor. As a deer pants for, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now notice this is, this is not just a thirsty deer, it's a panting deer. A panting deer is a deer that's literally dying of thirst. It's come down to the stream in the heat of the day to quench its thirsts and and what does it find? It finds the stream dry. In other words, this person is saying, I'm like the deer. And God is like the dry stream. In his estimation, he's facing a severe divine drought, as it were. The second part of us to explains, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's not that he no longer believes in God, but that he can't sense God as the living God. In terms of experience, there's a deadness about his relationship with God. I know there's some, especially in, in, in Reformed evangelical circles, who don't quite buy into the notion of feeling, but... Something that's known must be felt. There's a little, good, uh, little book by Stuart Holliot I would recommend. How he does a good treatment on this subject. And this God we serve, if you indeed have a true and personal relationship with him, you will experience him in that way. So the psalmist, he has lost the relational experience of God's presence. He has no more taste, he's got no more feel, no more sight, no more sound of God in his soul. You know what I mean by that. He uh, Thoughts about God that used to comfort and soften and strengthen him are now a distant reality. He is completely dried out. <clears throat> Wonder if you've ever had such an experience. When you feel God, feel God is distant or even non-existent. Notice we, we're reading from the Psalms. This is a book about poetry. It's about thinking and feeling. It's about 
experience as a result of what we know about God and as a result of what he's revealed about himself. You're going through a very dry time perhaps. Your energy is low. You're not, um, it's not what it used to be. You're listless. Everything seems flat. You don't get excited about things in the way that you used to. Everything about your life is a, is a drudgery, it's a struggle, it's, it's a grind. Friends, dry times will come for the Christian. It's only a matter of when. I suppose some of you are moving out of dry times, some of you may be experiencing dry times. The other lot you yet to, but you will. It's inevitable. And when they come, usually our first instinct is to question whether we're seeking God enough. Are we reading the Bible enough? Are we praying enough? Are we fasting enough? Are we giving enough? We add a more on legalistic dimension to it. You up the gear in these and other spiritual disciplines. And, and, and what you find is that you're still feeling flat. Even flatter sometimes. Been there, have you? But that's precisely where the psalmist is in a place of spiritual dryness. Symptom one of the condition. Symptom two, he feels rejected and forgotten. You see from uh, verse 3, verse 9, and 10. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Far from finding streams of water, as we saw in verse 1 and 2, the only water this pastor now knows is his tears. The absence of God is profoundly present. Instead of eating, he weeps day and night. And the taunting question from his adversaries bombards him. Where is your God? All day long it comes to him and he has no answer. He's thirsting for God. He feels rejected, forgotten by God. Symptom number three. He's under pressure. Look at verse seven. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I suppose you would have heard of the recent incident of the Ocean Gate submarine, the Titan. Prior to establishing what happened, it was feared that the vessel was on, right on the ocean bed, almost four kilometers down. perhaps trapped in the debris of the Titanic, and the occupants were running out of oxygen. There was an urgency to get to them as soon as possible because the only oxygen supply lasted for six days. So day after day passed. And hope Hope was running, running low. 
There was word about the darkness at the depths of the ocean. About the pressures of the currents. About the near freezing temperatures. And that picture was, was that of a very slow, it painted a picture of a very slow and painful death. We know, we know how, how it turned out from, uh, uh, well, at the end of the search, that it, was, um, it wasn't long after, you know, it had left the mothership and it must into the water. And upon descent, something like 400 kilometers from the seabed, it imploded instantly and would have been an instant death. But that's prior to that, the concern was about these, this kind of environment, dark, cold and pressured, that would lead to a very slow and painful death. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. That's the picture here. The expression deep calls to deep is not reassuring it's frightening this is bible poetry for chaos and for terror where there's a rhyme of i mean english poetry places emphasis on sound we've got rhymes of sound in english for example jack and jill went up the hill jill hill but hebrew poetry places emphasis on meaning like most psalms, you will find a line, metaphoric, poetic. The second line explains the metaphor. And so that's what we see here. Deep calls unto deep. Deep to deep at the row of your waterfalls. Second line, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. That's the point he's putting across. Not only is the psalmist in a spiritual drought, but he's also under overwhelming pressure. Trouble is surging with one overwhelming swell after another. The deep trials he's facing keep coming, wave like deep after deep. He's in an ocean of trial which he seems in which he seems to be drowning. Now the list goes on. He's downcast, discouraged. His soul is in turmoil. He's oppressed. His, his stomach is churning within him. He's moaning, which gives a, an indication of a sense of loss. You put all these symptoms together and you have a picture of a, of a person, a man that is in a very, very, very bad place. Battered from within and from without. In a state of extreme depression. I wonder if you've been there. Depression, as you know, is in degrees. And it takes many different forms. And it's, uh, it's not an uncommon experience to believers either. There are several examples in the Bible of those who had to walk through what has been called the dark night of the soul. And throughout history, there are Christians used by God and yet have suffered terribly from dark moods. Perhaps you're going through one today. I wonder if you've heard this phrase before, that's not my portion. 
Or maybe you've rebuked the devil in the belief that as a Christian you're exempt from this condition. That's not my portion. Well, that's contrary to what we see from the scriptures and even from your own personal experience. If indeed you're a Christian, this is your portion. It's part and parcel of your lot. So we've established the condition. What is the cause? I'll point out that there are quite a number of psalms where the psalmist is in great difficulty due to something they've done, usually a sin that they need to repent of. God is judging them in some way. They're going through some trials, a form of judgment. A sin they've committed, you see. But we don't see that here. Not even the slightest hint of it here in 42 and 43. The psalmist's condition has been ordained by God. He's saying, your waves. Your waves. All your breakers have gone over me. He's in a situation that's no fault of his own. The cause. So we see at the first that he's in a very hostile environment. Look, verse 3 and 10. My tears have been my food all day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And then it's almost repeated in verse 10. My foes, my enemies, taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? He lives with the taunts of his adversaries all day long. It's like it never stops, they never relent, and over time, the experience wears him down. You see, for, for the true Christian, there exists a tension between being in the world and being not of this world. While we are not, whilst we are not of the world, that is to say, aligned with the system of the world, the ways and the patterns of the world. The world itself is a hostile environment in which we're in. It's fallen, it's twisted, and it's cruel. And it will throw things at you that you never expected. It will throw things at you that will overwhelm you. It will throw things at you of which you're simply a victim. Not of any fault of your own. So we're not exempt from its effects. You have felt the relentless opposition in the culture. In every sphere of your life. At school. At home. Even in corporate worship, as we feel the pressures of the government and other elements trying to intervene in the affairs of the church and church government. It's a very hostile environment we're in. That's to be expected. And that can be a cause 
for depression. Second, he's far away from God's people and from the place of God's presence. Look at verse, for these things I remember as I poured out as, uh, my soul and how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. You see there he's describing what, what he used to do, but the point here is that he's not doing it now. The great festivals of people rejoicing and praising God. Marching to Jerusalem. You've done a series on the songs of ascents. Anticipating the worship that would take place at the temple in Jerusalem. God's dwelling place. No. He can only reminisce. He's not in Jerusalem when he writes 42 and 43. In verse 6 it says, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mitzah. He's miles away from Jerusalem. Why he was there, why, why he was away, we don't know, we're not told. But what's clear is that he's no longer in the place where God's people or where he's able to do what he loved to do, which is to worship God. He has lost a cherished role. And the joys that used to be his are simply his no longer. You see. So sure we can identify with this. We can identify with the longings of the psalmist. If for some reason we are unable to meet with God's people for communal worship, this should cause us to have familiar longings, you see. Yes, you can read and study the Bible on your own. You can pray on your own. You can worship on your own. There's a place for that. But let's look, at, let's look at things big picture. God, throughout the history of redemption, the Father has been seeking out a people, a bride for his son. We are part of a body. We are one and in the end it will be a people rejoicing before God for his salvation. The culture is individualistic, of course. And that kind of rubs off on us. It comes into the church. But we need to be constantly reminded of the big picture. We are a people. So we gather together to worship together. And so, um, solitude or your pub, uh, personal private spiritual disciplines. This must not be thought of as a replacement, as a substitute for meeting together with God's people. You see. Why? Because God commands it. There are many reasons for this, but it's a wise and a proper use of the privilege we have to publicly and corporately worship God. There are Christians in other lands who don't have this freedom. They are forbidden to meet. Yet they meet. 
risking their lives simply for meeting because they long to meet. Because they want to be obedient to God's command to meet. Because they know the blessings of meeting together. So the only way for us to express our gratitude for this liberty, for this freedom, is to use it faithfully and thankfully. So we've seen the condition and the cause. Now let's move to the cure. The condition, the cause, now the cure. We see here a set of cures. Uh, Three things I've pulled out. Not that this is all exhaustive, but three things that the psalmist does that you would... Do good to follow, not if, but when this condition comes upon you. One, he speaks honestly to God. You will see that in in, in the verse where he says, I pour out my heart. Two, he preaches to himself. Three, he remembers the loving kindness of God. He speaks honestly to God. Verse 9 and verse 43, 1 and 4. I pour out my soul. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Have you noticed you don't need to feel close to God in order to pray? Feelings are feelings. They flee, they, they, they are fleeting. Our hearts are fickle, you see. They change. Our emotions change constantly. We can't just go by them. Our task is to inform our minds so that our minds may inform our emotions. Emotions really is rooted from a, a Latin word which means to be pulled up, out and away from a previous position. You'll find in your day-to-day life that you're vacillating between different emotional positions, as it were. So you don't need to feel close to God in order to pray. I wonder whether you feel that sometimes. I do. Sure you do. You can pray as the psalmist does here, even when you feel that God has forgotten you, when you feel far from him. You can pray when you don't feel like praying. And you can tell him that you feel forgotten. You can tell him that you feel oppressed. You can tell him that you feel completely dried out. You can pour out your soul. You can tell him that your stomach is churning within you. And that you're in turmoil, in deep distress. The presence of God is one place where you can be safe in being yourself. After all, there's nothing you can tell him that he doesn't already know. Nothing. He speaks honestly to God. He pours out his soul. Cure number two. He preaches to himself. Verse 5 and verse 11. And verse 5 of 43, this here is the refrain we were talking about before. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, 
my salvation. You see, he's reasoning with himself here as he preaches to himself. He's implying that there's no need to be cast down since God is my hope. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote so helpfully on this, asks this question. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? Most of your unhappiness comes from this, he says. You listen to all the thoughts and the fears, all the questions and the doubts that arise from within your own soul. You listen to all that, but you don't talk to yourself. That's another tension here, isn't it? Tension between the flesh, that's the unredeemed self, and the new man, the redeemed self. And the natural tendency of the former is to throw up all kinds of fears and doubts. Whereas the natural tendency of the latter, of the new man, is to bring to the surface the truth about God, the very promises of God. So these two will always be in conflict with each other. And one of the ways to resolve this is by taking hold of God's truth when you're in this dark pit of depression and preaching it to yourself as the psalmist does. We sound our hearts are prone to wonder and we feel it. We're prone to leave. We're prone to doubt the God we love. Because we forget. We have a high propensity to forget, don't we? So the psalmist teaches us here to take hold of God's truth, preach it to yourself, hammer it down to self, repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and get it reinforced into your heart. If we're only being anxious about our anxieties, worrying over our worries, stewing our problems, we're only nourishing the old mind, the downcast spirit. But here we're exalted to nourish the renewed mind. Cure number three, he remembers the loving kindness of the grace of God. He speaks honestly to God, pours out his soul, he preaches to himself, and now he remembers the loving kindness of the grace of God. But no, he says in verse 4 and 6 of 42, as we conclude, I will turn from old memories. I keep remembering God, he says. The mind feeding on divine truth, dwelling on the promises of God, recalling his endless masters and unchanging love, turning its gaze upon Jesus, that mind is walking the pathway of renewal and has established itself in hope. That word hope appears a lot in 
these two verses. It's the main theme, as it were. And our English language doesn't do justice to it because there's an element of doubt to it. I hope I have some lunch after the sermon. I mean, I'm implying that maybe someone will be kind enough to host and give me a meal in my family. I'm hoping. That's the English version of the word hope. The Hebrew version of the word hope is something totally, totally different. It's a confidence, a security, a being without care, an assurance based upon what we've been promised by God in his word. The word doubt has no association with it whatsoever. It's confidence through and through. And that confidence is rooted in the person of God, the work of God and the promises of God. From the depth of his despair, the psalmist found help in the depth of God's goodness. And he was able to say, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So as we conclude, here's something for you. Something you can use in your heart. Read Psalm 42 and 43 and listen. Listen to the one who said, I thirst. Hear the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? Think of the one whose enemies taunted him saying, where is your God? Let's see if God will come and save him. Consider him who said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. As our brother Ola read from my Garden of Gethsemane account. He felt the very breakers and waves of the Father going over him, overwhelming him, even to the point of death. Our Lord Jesus Christ really experienced not just the loss of feeling Uh, The loss of the feeling of God. He lost God when he was trusting God. He suffered the ultimate thirst. He was forgotten by God. So that despite your sin and mine. God will never give up on us. On you and I. Hope. In dire straits. Talk to yourself. Preach to yourself. It's not madness. Preach Christ to yourself. Other refuge. You have none.